0: Welcome to the Previously Learned podcast with myself James Shaw and Michael Glockland. I was recently asked what is Previously Learned all about and how does it start? Well, in a nutshell, given that life doesn't come with a manual, Previously Learned is all about hearing life lessons from the people of all different backgrounds. Why Previously Learned came about is an interesting one. I lost my parents fairly recently. My mum a cancer and my dad had a heart attack, pretty much 12 months apart. My dad just before Christmas 2017 and my mum Christmas 2018. This tragic event, or truth be known, I'm unsure I ever got over, got me thinking about life lessons that I could pass on to my own children. My now 11-year-old son and my six-year-old daughter. Now, given that they don't listen to me, I was talking to my good friend Mike over a beer about life lessons. And Mike himself is a father of two he has also lost his own dad. I want my kids to hear advice and life lessons, but only know what I know. And even that, depending on who you ask, isn't worth knowing. So I thought, why not speak to people that have been there, done that, and got the t-shirt. And that is how You Learn came about. On this episode, we were joined by Perry McCarthy, ex-Formula One and Le Mans driver, best-selling author of Flash Out Flat Broke, and the original stick from BBC's Top Gear. Please check out his website, PerryMcCarthy.co.uk. Link are in the notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to follow and review, as it really does help us improve. And thank you very much for listening. So, Barry, welcome to Proof Prove to Learn podcast. Thank you very much for coming
1: on. I appreciate you busy. It's awesome to be able to talk to you. How are you? That's things? Thanks, James. Hi, Michael. Lovely to be with you. Yeah, a few things get going on, but uh, I'm sure we'll have a good chat. Yep. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. Absolutely looking forward to it. So,
0: you know, as I touched on just before we hit record, it's all about life lessons, um, of which I'm sure you've got many. But i give a very quick pricey on you. I mean, you, you worked on the oil rigs, F1 driver, uh, Le Mans driver, the original stick for BBC's Top Gear, author of uh, Flat Out, Flat Broke. Speaker, ambassador, motivator, how did it all come about, Perry? How did did it all happen?
1: Uh, It wasn't expected. I always had the idea that when I was a kid, I always thought when I found something, then I'd be flat out. But the idea of finding something, I wasn't clear what it was going to be. At one moment, I thought it might be in the forces, actually, for the RAF, because I was quite interested in that. But then a few things come together, which was particularly bizarre I went to college and it was at college uh, I met a friend and uh, he followed motor racing big time and he used to read this lovely magazine called Grand Prix International it had these wonderful shots of F1 cars and one of my subjects was art so I kept drawing the F1 cars at the same time my road driving perhaps left a little bit to be desired but I did meet an awful lot of the Essex police on a regular basis Um, and bit by bit I started reading about these F1 drivers and thinking, well, I'm really, really interested. I started watching the races, went to a few. And at the same time, word about my road driving kept getting around to people. And it reached the ears of the chief instructor of Brand Hatch Racing. And he actually came out to get me. So all of these things were a million to one shot, even to begin. And he said, right, I've come to pick you up because i was working in a music shop at that time and he knew the owner of that so i went with him to Grand hatch took him out showed him how brilliant i was um and then he got in the car and blew me away he must have been about 62 years old he was so much better you know he was just and talking at the same time i was sitting in the car thinking this crazy bastard's lost his mind yeah but he but he really knew what he was doing But he saw something in me and he said, I want you to get back in and have another go. So I did. But I'd been on sponge mode. I'd really watched. I'd really listened. I'd really felt what was going on. And he put a clock on me. And if this wasn't the truth, I wouldn't be sitting here speaking to you today. I went out and beat his best ever time. And that was it. He dragged me out the car and said, you've got to be a racing driver. And I said, I've found it. I've found that thing I've been looking for. So he introduced me to the circuit owners and everything else. And it was very shortly after that, I met Bernie Ecclestone, mm-hmm. And uh, I said, Jan, I want to get to F1. And Bernie said, son, he said, at your age, with no money, no rich parents, et cetera, so the odds of you getting there are about a million to one. And Bernie probably had a point, actually. So I went to work on North Sea oil rigs for two and a half years to get the money together. And whilst I was out there, you know, it was cold. It wasn't pleasant um wasn't in love with everybody else working with definitely hated the work but it was a means to an end because it was paying a lot of money and when i was clinging on to the scaffolding and you know in the high winds and everything else all i kept thinking of stop moaning this is your ticket this is going to buy you your ticket but the thing was it did but it bought me an entry into form and so there wasn't really what won my term Oh, I need a learning year in this, and I need to gauge the scene. I need quite literally, it was getting go against all the other boys that had been out there in casting and everything else and winning. That was it. That was there wasn't really an awful lot of uh, odds. Um, so the first season, I only managed six races before I had to go back out into the Ritz again. But I'd set three pole positions in that. But then I did come in, and then I won the British Championship in 1983. Um. so that was great so I'm thinking hey maybe I am pretty good mm-hmm. and then the first race of the following year I had a mother and father of a shot at Alton Park in fact that crash was so big at Alton Park they actually stopped the race at Silverstone that's how big the crash was <laughs> that's a joke James <laughs> they're not the same place <laughs> but that, like, <laughs> that was broke my back And so then it was a question of thinking, well, yeah, I've come quite, it's been quite a journey so far, the oil rigs, getting the money, coming on track, making a bit of a name for myself straight away. And now this was a big setback, but you know, I wasn't going to turn my back on it. So it was a question of getting better, picking the phone up once I could walk properly again, walking around the industrial space, and making sure I was giving myself some kind of chance for the future. So it was a big bunch of life lessons at quite a young age because there was no support. There was no family interest. There was no managers. There was no physiotherapists. Well, sorry, I did have physiotherapists yeah. to get better, but there were no trainers and nutritionists and all this kind of stuff. It was get off your butt, go do it. Yeah. So you're on your own two feet and no excuses.
0: If not, you've got no When you, so when you said like, obviously your opportunity to do, it's going to be very, very small. Did you take that as more to then prove
1: him wrong or? No, you- no, 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 no. I'm not. I couldn't give a monkey's about proving anybody wrong. I just do what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's always been my philosophy. I'm not allowed to prove anybody wrong. It's Who cares? You know, it's. I don't think you can build your life on building, you know, proving other people wrong. You know, you, you also have to leave yourself open in life to actually just changing your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I had been going along that path as a racing driver, as other people have to, and then thought, actually, this isn't for me, then, you know, you would have been in it for the wrong reasons to have been trying to prove somebody wrong. And I mention that because that's applicable to any endeavor, any career. Were you um,
0: just touching on, obviously, when you say you broke your back, how, how did you feel getting back in the car after that? Were you scared or did it? Or you. No. I wasn't I wasn't
1: at all scared actually um and I think that that's there's no bravado there you're either scared or you're not it's that it wasn't some kind of superhero I'm so brave thing it just didn't affect me that was that was it and I think that there are a few things in my character and my makeup that aren't deliberate but they just suit being a racing driver so they they weren't deliberate the the weaknesses that we all possess. If you want to take an, if you want to take um, a career to an extreme level, you have to work on those weaknesses because you have to be better. So there is an element of saying, "Hey, listen, I'm not a finished article. I'm not clear. I ever was. I'm not clear who is, because every year, even our fantastic stars that are in F1." They're always maintaining, they learn something every year. And I think that's, that's really interesting. Otherwise it'd get bloody boring, wouldn't it? If you didn't learn
2: anything and if you knew everything. Well, that's one story, so, so, Michael. Uh, you say obviously that, you know, fear wasn't the things that sort of caught you back. What types of things helped you to get back? Because obviously that's quite a serious setback. Um, for you, what sort of things did you focus on? What was the sort of uh, allowed you to sort of thing and say, right, I'm going to do like sets goals or what was the set sort of areas that allowed you to, to get back after the accident?
1: Well, pain was the limiting factor for a while um, because I, I wouldn't have been able to do the job because of where I did break my back. And i tell you something, it's, uh, I, you know, the way I broke my back, I was very lucky compared to how some people break their back. Because, of course, that puts them out forever, you know. So I was, you know, very fortunate at that. But I, I had taken a fairly good hiding with concussion and a fractured neck as well. So, But the limiting factor, as it is for most racing drivers, was finance. So it was a question of corralling enough investment, sponsorship, patronage, handouts, anything possible to get back in a racing car. And you have to turn it on again pretty quickly. But... The funny thing was the 1985 season i had when i did come back was awful and it's probably my worst ever time in mountain racing i did not want to be in formula forward again end of story i just didn't but i couldn't afford to move up and that kind of that really we we had a lack of money in 85 which meant lack of testing lack of this lack of that but honestly their excuses a little bit because my mentality wasn't right for 85. I didn't want to do it. And that really showed up in the results. But what I did do was I used 1985 ruthlessly as a way to introduce a whole raft of different sponsors to the sport with the idea of just somehow getting through another season of Formula Ford. And I, I guarantee you, I did not want to be out there, but I did want to be in F3. All the way through my career, I and this is going to sound stupid, but, you know, you've asked me to tell you how I feel about stuff. I felt I was a Formula One driver that wasn't there yet. That, that's all there was to it. So it was a question of working through stuff and showing what I could do. And then I was very fortunate indeed, but it came off the back of a huge commitment. Every single day of the week, picking the phone up, walking around industrial estates, chatting to people, sending out letters. This wasn't like, oh, I've got yet another no. This was thousands of nos In fact, I understand the word no in 27 different languages. That's how many no's I got. (laughs) But rejection can be tough to take. But if you take it um, and and it finishes you, then you, you are finished. So it was a question of plowing on I'm praying that you have the right package that you've learned enough to put together to make the whole affair attractive to a possible sponsor. And I hit I hit big with a company called Hortle Whiting. And I put a, a quite a clever deal together because I also put Motor Magazine on the car. And they were giving me no money, but they were going to give me fantastic coverage. Well, the people that I chose and that I followed up on they were automotive engineering company that were after making a big name brand. Mm. So that really fit. So all of those platforms fit together to make a, yeah, a, to give some continuity to their own aspirations. So that was my chance to come into Formula 3. So... The plan worked. It got me into F3 and really got me on the way. And by then, of course, there was me, Damon, Johnny Herbert, Mark Blundell, Julian Bailey, Martin Donnelly, Bertrand Gasho, you know, carry on going. In in the French formula, um Jean Lacy and um yeah, a few of the other boys, sorry, the names of go. So Eric Comas, Eric Bernard, you know, there were like ten or twelve of us made it through to F1 from that year. That's, that's unheard of, right? It's absolutely unheard of. I mean, in the British Championship alone, I think it was eight of us who went through to Formula a while. That's how competitive it was. This, was. this was an absolute masterclass in getting better and better and better yeah. for, for all of us, not just me, for the others as well. Well, you kind of tuning each other on
0: at that point, then. You can see what someone else is doing, and your, you you're saying, like, he's doing that, I've got to do that
1: as well. Then, as pure osmosis, it then takes off. I'm, I'm not. I'm not clear that I would follow somebody's line, if you like, um, because there's so much more to it inside the cockpit than just mm-hmm. taking a a wonderful racing line. You know, you should be good enough to experiment yourself. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you have to have in this game yeah. is sensitivity. You know, you have to have judgment. It's all very well, you know, being brave and and being kind of devil may care and all this kind of stuff, but you've got to have some kind of sensitivity you you need to possess all the other factors as well I but above everything else it's no good and I'm, I'm saying this as an overarching thing not targeting it at myself it's no good being talented and I'll say this about any career I'll say this about any endeavour anything that's in the outside world it's no good just being good and talented you've got to want it you've got to work to make yourself stand out because there are a lot of people that are really good, really talented, but there's that X factor, which says I need to be recognized and I have to push at all costs to make sure, especially if you come from a kind of, uh, I wouldn't say humble, but yeah, I'm a working class boy. And you know, I'm not, not into all the working class hero stuff and all that rubbish, but it's that, It's a, it's a comparison of what is available as money and support. So it's just a question of being determined, but you've got to wise up to anybody out there. Unless you're unbelievably lucky, most of the time, there's a, there's a magic word with four letters in and it's W O R and K. The, the work ethic under, underpins everything. If it's an athlete, if it's a footballer, rugby player, somebody in business, somebody making a career coming through, talent, energy, work ethic, attitude. Mm-hmm. No? <laughs> did you have that from a young age?
0: That that work ethic was instilled in you, or um, or did you try and get it yourself because you knew what you wanted to do? I don't
1: know low threshold threshold of boredom when I was a kid. So school, I was generally able to grasp concepts quite quickly and got very bored very quickly if I'd kind of got through stuff and wanted to move on. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, quite often, this isn't brilliant to say, but avoided school, you know, (laughs) and I would just... But the thing I did do is that I would read all my textbooks at home. Um, and I kind of, you know, clearly I couldn't go on missing list all the time. Otherwise I would have been up in front of the truancy board all the time, you know, but, but, um, but I kind of preferred to do my own stuff. And again, I was talking about earlier that there are a bunch of things about me that suited motor racing. Uh, I. I have the ability to focus and for a long period of time, but if I want to. So it was. A, this is a roundabout way of answering your question about did I have the work ethic as a kid? Not always where you might expect it, but from what I expected from myself, yes, but not necessarily always whilst at school. So you clearly...
0: Highly determined and, and your work like ethics there. But h- how how do you deal with setbacks then? Especially if it's not something your fault, for example, or,
1: you know, it's how does that, do, do you get frustrated over it? Yeah, cranky. I still do. You know, like there's things go wrong all the time with anything I try to do. And inside, I get highly irritated. But it's a question of not standing there screaming and hollering, it's a question of just going, right. What do I need to do to find a way around this? I need to think what there there is normally, I won't say always, but there's normally some kind of solution. And in life, of course, we would all wish to travel from A to B, such as the journey of being a racing driver, coming into Formula Ford. It would be lovely to go straight from there, F3, F3000 as it was then, now F2, and straight into F1. That's lovely. And you'd like to do that is one year, one year, one year, F1. But that's not always available. So if you look at going from A to B as a ski slope, you might have to veer right for a while. Then you come back left for a while. As long as you're kind of somehow making a forward progress, but you might have to go sideways and then sideways and then sideways. So not the quickest route. as long as you're making progress and that's the way i always approach stuff to say what can i do to get a bit further on Mm -hmm. and you're keeping that destination at the end at all
0: times right so you're seeing your goal you're seeing your objective and you're heading towards it whether it meanders or not
1: yeah there was only one objective for me that's formula now that to be honest in my own career perhaps wasn't the brightest way to go about it because i i ignored some opportunities that could have helped me get to F one faster because it wasn't the classic F three, F three thousand, F one. So so perhaps perhaps I on that I maybe could have done with a little bit of advice from somebody who was brighter than me back then. Did you know those opportunities were there though? Sorry? Did you know those opportunities were there at the time? It was only in hindsight. the problem here is is that I just didn't even take any notice of anything you know there was those those opportunities i didn't even explore them because i was laser focused on just traveling my route to get to f1 now i did do a slight detour when i went to america because that was in group c the imsa racing so and that funny enough was what brought me into f1 being able to get in something that was half reasonable out there and then i led many of the races. I mean, we could never, really, because the engine would blow up or the gearbox would go, but to be on pole, 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 leading, 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 or taking the lead, that that's, and with the kind of, it was, the the British motor racing press were instrumental in getting me to Formula One. People like David Tremaine, who was the editor of Motoring News and is a renowned F1 journalist, etc., their belief in me, um, A, helped keep me going because it wasn't just me barking at the moon saying, oh, I'm really good. You know, you need other people around you mm-hmm. saying, actually, you are good. So that, that reinforces your decision because by the time I was getting toward F1, yeah, I was approaching 30 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I was even older than that when I got in. So you've pretty much screwed any other career opportunities, it's, it's the gamble has been, this has got to pay off. But going back to the barriers and overcoming obstacles that you mentioned, you know, I, again, I maintain that the best way to avoid obstacles or problems is not set out to achieve anything. Anybody else who wants to achieve anything will come up with some kind of barrier, some kind of a problem. So whatever level there is, if they really want to achieve it, they will have to overcome it. And that takes focus and it takes work and it takes a maturity to do that rather than throwing the toys out the ground saying, I can't go on everything else. Anybody can do that. Mm-hmm. But what you have to do is to just turn and say, I want to make this happen. You know I'm speaking generically yet, don't you? Not just about me and the yeah. goal of F1. It's about anything. To just say, but you've got to be convinced it's worth it. Because when people speak to me about saying, oh, you got to F1, they don't really have any idea exactly how how horrible some of the moments were of living with no money and massive debt. You're on the edge of your seat all the time. You're trying to do any deal possible to stay afloat. And you've got to take on the best in the world. So did you keep that self-belief the whole time? You said... Because you kept I would say, Yeah, I, I would say I pretty much did. I mean, Mike, you asked a question earlier about being frightened. There was one moment I was frightened. Uh, I'd had two massive crashes in Formula 3, and they were both suspension failures. Now, nowadays, and quite rightly so, I would never have been letting, let back in a car after the first one because I'd got a bad blow to the head. But two days later, I got in another F3 car and that suspension collapsed at the rear. And that was another big blow to the head. And then two days later, they built another car for me. I was beginning to worry about them by now, but they built another car for me for the Selnet Super Supra. And I went out and I was doing about 50 miles an hour and shaky, And I couldn't focus because i I'd, I'd really had concussion. But nowadays, of course, it would have been recognized, but I was so desperate. I've got to put things right. But this is probably my proudest story because I, I came in and I was shaking, you know, my hands were shaking and that is unlike me. And I jammed my hands in between my legs so the team couldn't see it. And I just sat there as, and the team, they must've known something because they completely left me alone. And I sat in the car and the time's clicking away and I just kept repeating to myself, what you can't be scared. What do you want to do? Do you want to be a racing driver? Racing drivers have to go fast. You can't be a scared racing driver. That's it. And then suddenly I managed to kind of reassemble all the little bits in my mind and been shattered by this concussion. And I signaled to start up and there was it's very dramatic. There was literally just a few minutes left. I went out, did a warm-up lap. I had one time lap and I put it on part. And I came into the pits, and then my mind fell apart again. I wasn't clear where I was. I got out of the car. Uh, the mechanics told me I started crying. Uh, the, 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 there was a real emotional... Something had gone wrong with my head. I didn't know what was happening, you know? And then I went into the race the following day, and I was feeling a bit better, but I was quite groggy. And I, I could only finish fourth. But it was the Super breed, So given those... But I never... I never suffered from being frightened again. I did it. There were plenty of times I was scared, especially driving that Hebrew junk in F1, you know, when you're strapped into that thing and the steering's not working. I was going to ask you about it. Absolutely that. frightened. Frightened was a different thing. Frightened, I thought my career was possibly over mm-hmm. because I couldn't drive in the, the Formula 3 car until I managed to do it. I was going to ask you about that when you... So
0: like you're in, you're, you're strapped in that car and you know, it was that when uh, your your
1: advised one of the journalists said to you, please Perry, don't do it. Don't. don't get in the car. Yeah. That was Tony Dodgins. Yeah. Just before I bought him. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt James.
2: No, no, it's fine.
0: No, it's fine. But how do you feel when you're told that As you're about to get in the car, you're in the car and he was like, you have just been told that.
1: Well, I looked at him and I said, Tony, I, I know what you mean, but I've got no choice. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to make a name for myself in Formula 1 and you don't not get in an F1 car. Um, but the funny thing was, his his little vision proved correct because on my first time there, as I went into Eau Rouge, which you may know is particularly fast, I felt the steering tighten. Now, I'm not talking about a normal load tighten. This really tightened, you know? Now, if it had been any other car I probably would have just kept my foot in and just tried to braid it out. But the alarm bells rang and thank God they did because I hit the brakes. But by the time I've done that, I'm already in the middle of the corner. Mm-hmm. And I just managed to come off the brakes because I, I can't explain how I knew this, but I knew to come off the brakes. He lifted the front and I managed to turn the wheel. And unless I trusted every instinct I had, and believe me, this story takes much, much longer to tell than actually in real life it happened Because <laughs> it all happened inside one second. Yeah, And what had happened was they'd set me out with a faulty steering rack. So as the car was being pushed into the ground, even an Andre and motor had some downs. Mm. The steering rack flexed, which when turning the wheel, you're trying to turn the steering arms into the steering rack. But think of a toilet roll that's bending in half. You can't poke anything through that like a stick, you know? So that's why it jammed. So coming off the brakes, he came back off the springs, yeah, allowed it to turn. It still took me off the track. I was running alongside the wall and then I, I then realized what was happening. Slowed down, steering was okay. Went a bit quicker, steering low. And when I come into the pits, I said, I think the steering rack's flexing. And they said, oh, we know, because that's my Italian accent. I said, what do you mean you know? And they said, uh, oh, we, we tested it on the Roberto's car last week. So I said, so you found the steering rack flexi on Roberto's car, and you put it on mine for qualifying for the Belgian Grand Prix. Yeah, well, word got around. Obviously, the journalists picked up on this straight away, and that was it. And and that was it for me as well, because that conversation when I said, Tony, I've got to get in. Well, knowing that was their level, then I wasn't going to be getting in again anyway. You know, that's
0: insane, isn't it? putting your life in their hands. It's like, fuck me, that's that's another level, right? I'm
2: going to say, I'm going to maybe slightly a controversial. Safety is obviously paramount; it has to be, and it has to be the the sort of safety of the drivers, spectators, and and the support teams. Do you think there's a chance it's maybe gone too far and it's taken some of the edge or the fun out of racing? I, I, I know and this is from somebody who just likes Formula One rather than understands anything about cars or racing. Do you think there's a line that's been crossed, or is it we we need to constantly pursue safety? Well,
1: no, I I kind of there's an awful lot of me that agrees with that, um, and there's an awful lot of me that doesn't agree with that. It's it's very very difficult subject because what kind of does rub me up the wrong way is that years ago, if Me, if I was overtaking somebody around the outside or if somebody indeed was trying to overtake me around the outside, I'm not going to have this just a one-way street. I'm the only person that could do it. It was an incredible risk, massive, because we didn't have long runoff areas, And if that went wrong, um, you were going to meet a wall. And you were going to meet a wall very fast and very hard. So those kind of maneuvers were... hugely risky so when they did come off they were incredibly exciting now what we do have now is that with the and this is just stating facts with the strength of the cars with the runoff areas with the barrier technology is that you don't really need to be quite as brave or quite as committed to do those kind of maneuvers so it's kind of you see more and more of them so therefore the positive result of it is diluted, you know? You don't think, oh my God, that was absolutely unbelievable given those parameters of those risks, you know? So that's where I feel that we can see people who maybe aren't mega racing drivers doing something that only a mega racing driver could do. Does that made sense. I'm not clear
2: yeah. if I'm explaining that correctly. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's you know the it's the risk profile versus the the skill of the driver and stuff. But the yeah, I just thought it was interesting that we have got safety has to be paramount, but you wonder if it's just taking a bit too much of the edge out. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think we're, you know, I mean, we're we're talking about runoff areas here. We're talking about barrier technology, but also. You know, the way they stop races now or the way they bring a safety car out. Now, often the safety car is used very well indeed. But other times it's brought out in kind of what I would determine personally, a very minor situation. And then it's certainly left out now way too long. And you just go, oh, for goodness sake, you know, there's, there's going to be some jeopardy in this game. There really has to be. So... That's the dinosaur talking here. You know, conversely, we're all broken hearted when, you know, somebody does get killed or very badly injured. So it's, what do you do? But it's, but there are some things that I think that, you know, I would never, I would never go against um, making the car safer. I, I wasn't originally terribly keen on the halo when it came out to be quite frank. And I still have some reservations on that. Conversely, we've seen some instances where you go, Do you know what? I think that probably saved his life. Mm. You know? So it's it's such a difficult one for me to comment on correctly.
2: Yeah, I think that's interesting. I just wanna I've um Le Mans 24. Um I've been, I think probably about a dozen times. Um, and uh it's it's obviously a fantastic weekend for spectators. But what's the kind of lessons that you'd learn from endurance racing and what was the, all the things from prep all the way through to what you needed to do during the race and, and the way that worked and what kind of things did you learn from it? You're working with teammates a bit more because you're sharing the car.
1: So, I mean, there's still that innate desire to be the fastest from the squad. There's no question about that. You know, and any racing driver who tells you, oh no, we just work as a team and they got that. They want to put <laughs> one over on the other two they're sharing with. They're like, Badges. It's the same car. You want to be
2: the fastest, right?
1: <laughs> you do. But sometimes you're thinking, hey, listen, you know, there is a responsibility to bring the bloody thing, home. Um So, and you're also sharing really your feelings on the setup. I'll give you an example on some sacrifice is that the last time I was at the mall was for the works Audi today. And there's myself, Mika Salo. Mika was fairly fresh out of Ferrari or Toyota, Toyota while uh, 1. Frank Dealer and Frank's won the mall four times, I think, you know, so two great teammates. And one of the biggest enemies in any motor racing is time. So we, Mika and I decided to just let Frank do all the testing. Frank, you go set the car up. Get the car absolutely how you want it. Let's get the best from this car. And then Mika and I were certainly confident that whatever Frank's done to it, we can be plugged in and we will then be able to drive it. So, but the deficit to that, of course, is that by the time myself and Mika were due to go in for the race, we've had like three laps each. But but that's taking. we were both... Confident boys, and just go, it's not ideal, but the Bennettlies were faster than us. So we're trying to fine tune what we had. And we decided this was the best route. Frankie, you get the car to the best possible way it can be, and then we'll plug in and come up to speed fast, you know? So it's a question of accepting some kind of compromise sometimes, which to most racing drivers is quite a difficult <laughs> concept.
2: And if compromise is good, to accept must be quite difficult I think there comes a moment in
1: time where being pragmatic and compromising needs to be within the menu Um, I mean I had a big fallout with Lotus when I drove for them in the GT World Championship because they were people who would spend an awful long time on a damper thinking, oh, if, if we can get this damper like this, we can get another 500 of a second out of a lap. Forgetting the fact that our brakes were overheating within two laps or that I didn't do the um, butterfly clip-up on the oil union, uh, Jubilee clip, pardon me, on the oil union, uh, which meant that we sprayed oil everywhere and lost the engine. You know, that, it's a question of organising priorities. And that's for me, is being pragmatic and just saying let's get to the low-hanging fruit. Let's take care of the big problems first. We'll compromise on the smaller problems, but let's get the big ones done first. If we've got time, then let's concentrate on the smaller areas of fine-tuning. So I would lose patience sometimes in some what I thought were pretty unnecessary detailed debriefs when there were bigger issues to just zoom zoom in on. I think that's a question of organising your thoughts and organising what needs to be done now. And I think that neatly brings us back to those life things we were talking about, is to have that quite ruthless attitude to turn and say, what do I need to do? What needs to go out the window? What's the window dressing here? What is the kind of core focus of what I need to do here and now? And that's really and maybe sometimes I was wrong to do that, you know, in a race situation. Maybe I was too whitewash and then get. But that was how I did things, you know. I, I'm really, I, I can't suffer too much chit chat for no reason whatsoever. Well, you're working at a high speed,
0: like a activity, right? You haven't got time for wasting on. Chit
1: chat, it's all about getting these quick. quick... Oh, well, I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely out for chit-chat over a beer and at the bar. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: conscious of your time anyway, but so a couple of questions, that's all right. I mean, like, um, what
1: advice would you give your younger self? And like would you change anything? It's it's really funny. I've I've been asked this question before, and there were some parts of me which were you know flat up, jacked the land you know loving a pint being down the pub etc um and maybe maybe i was quite well known for that kind of stuff um so maybe to do that but keep it more of a secret (laughs) 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 but i'm teasing actually but the, the the problem is is that if you cut out too many too many things that are actually your character then you've just put a bucket of water over the fire that's within you. So, yeah, I never took these things too far, to to be quite frank. But I loved a laugh and a joke. And if people confuse style with intent, that probably damaged me. But that's their problem as well. So, you know, my personality would be to tell a few jokes, have a laugh, etc. And some people would say, oh, he's not that serious. But those people who said that didn't know me. You know, so I'm not really clear what I'd go back to say to young Perry, except to try and offer encouragement because I was doing all the training and I think some of the moods that I did, were maybe too rash. I, I, I maybe I could have been brighter to be honest. Yeah, that's maybe maybe have evaluated a, a race situation just a little bit better rather than always being the guy who's going around the outside or the impossible overtake or whatever. So but again, that was the fire that you know, I I think I was pretty quick. So that was the fire that made me fast. That want, that is sheer enjoyment. So what do you do? You go back and just say, oh, you can be a racing driver, but you must have race too hard. Yeah you know, I I don't know what to turn around and say I think there were some people, when I was looking for sponsors and everything else, there were some people, if I'd been a bit brighter, maybe I was wasting my time on them a bit too much, where they weren't. So maybe I wasn't quite ruthless enough with certain people in that business environment then. That, that would have been the one. Be, be a little bit more cautious and not quite as trusting because that is my normal nature. Mm -hmm. There's, um, I heard an interview... But Sorry, James, I'm going to... I'm sorry, I know I'm talking a lot. I really do. I'm I'm aware of that. But, But the problem is that there's a flip side to that. If you do adopt a more cynical approach, and if you're too cautious, then you never give... You never explore the opportunity to think, well, what could be? Would that person be an interesting chat, et cetera, you know, or can let something be done? So that's the flip side. So, I'm, and I'm still like that. I give everybody a go, but I'm quicker now to decide, no, that's going nowhere, you know? Do you know what? We've had, I was having this exact same conversation with a guy
0: at work the other day, and his son just started out, you know, basically the same industry. And he said, at oh, his early 20s, he said, for the next 10 years, just say yes to everything i so that's uh, Richard Branson's opinion, yeah. Yeah, because you don't know where it's going to take you. Just say yes, you know, then and that way you can't look back and regret as well. And it's, it's an interesting way of doing it. But um, and then when you get older, you can narrow it down a bit. You can be a little bit more selective about what you're going to do. But it's, yeah. it's a nice way to do it. But it's uh, so, I think sometimes it's easier said than done.
1: Yeah, if at first you don't succeed, don't try and be a skydiver. <laughs> <laughs> i was going to ask as well i'm mean, like
0: there's i heard an interview that you did as well and um with a certain um big bank i mean he's after the sponsorship oh, yeah and you got the letter yeah i, I, won't, I won't ruin the story for you i think you tell it but that's all right but how did i let you tell us how did you feel when you like you know when you got the other one
1: well, I think i better open the story up because I don't yeah, think you're yeah. going to have any idea about it. that You know, that as we touched on before, it's making phone calls, sending out letters, knocking on doors, trying to get meetings either. You know, even if I got a meeting with somebody, I thought there was a success there because there was a challenge. But one day I got a meeting approved by Buck, who's bank of international, so it was their senior people. So I was really encouraged and thinking, oh my God. God, if Barclays come with me, they could sponsor me into Formula 3. We could go to F2, F3000. They could take me all the way. We could be best buddies, the whole thing. And they were lovely, people, charming. They listened to me, made chat, conversation. Anyway, I said, we'll be in A week later, a letter come through the, envelope, uh, through the door, and on the envelope, it was franked. You know, the sticker at the top, Barclays Bank International. So I was really excited. So I opened it up, pulled the letter out, Dear Perry, good start. You may recall when you came in. Um, it was great to meet you and and really enjoyed listening to everything. Fascinating story. Um we've had a chat about it internally. Very sorry to tell you. On this occasion, we won't be able to support you. And you think, oh God, okay, there's another turn down. But what a polite letter. Very nice of them to have considered it. So that was it. About two weeks later. There was another envelope come through the post, Frank Barclays Bank International. And you, I looked at him and went, hello, what's going on here? So I opened it up, pulled the letter out, all excited. Dear Perry, another good start. You may recall from our meeting and the last letter that we sent you, where we had analysed it and we could not approve support, yeah? Since then, we've reconvened and rediscovered, yeah? And we've discussed your situation, and we've talked it through, and, yeah, and we're sorry to tell you, we still can't sponsor it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just looking at this page, and I've read it again, because I must have got it wrong. Yeah. And I'm thinking, have they got nothing better to do? They're sitting around going, a bit bored today. What should we do? Send that young bloke a letter and wind him up. And I, I must admit, this is where it's handy having a sense of humour to be quite cracked. Because I, I always thought I should have kept that letter. I should have had that framed. It's unbelievable. He, like, oh, I, I don't know how you feel. Sorry, quick question: Do you bank with Barclays? Just, just checking. No, funny enough, I've had <laughs> <laughs> Now, but, but to be fair to Barclays, all the banks have turned me down, so it wasn't just that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, what legacy do you like to pass on? Well, my, my fundamental belief is that I understand failure. I really do it because I've failed so many times on so many things. Uh, thank goodness. I understand success as well, because I, there's been a bunch of things that have gone terribly well and I have succeeded, but what I don't understand is mediocrity. I don't, I just don't understand that. Um, now. It's everybody's prerogative to live as they wish to. No problem whatsoever. But in my own life, it's, I'd rather go out punching and kicking and fail on something. I don't enjoy failing. Trust me. I really don't. It massively irritates me. And it kind of, there is an anger inside me, probably still to make sure that what I set out to do succeeds where I want it to do or in some way, shape or form. And I still fail, honestly, James, left, right, and center, you know, but I still win as well. So it's kind of, that's the attitude. One of the things that I would really propose to everybody is, and it goes back to that, you've got to want it thing, is that there's my own attitude as a racing driver was that I needed to make me better, you know? So great, I've won the British Formula 4 championship, great. But it wasn't over and done with. So I needed to be fitter, I needed to be smarter, I needed to be more commercially aware, I needed to be this, I needed to be that, And all of those things to be a better racing driver. But then there's a second career, and this is something that I've absolutely, probably to a level of boredom, as far as my kids are concerned, pummeled into there, is to say there's two careers. So from my own life, there's that racing drive of being better, 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 better. But the second career is to make sure that other people know about the first career. That other people can see that hopefully you're different, that you have some value, that you have, that you benefit them in their own endeavors or what they're trying to achieve. And that is every bit as important the two have to go hand in hand. So for me, it's all been about being without, you know, just uh, sounding softy. but it has been flat out. Mm. And, you know, that's the uh, name of the book, of course, Flat Out, Flat Bro. It's going really well. I mean, so another copy just last month. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. That was me. So, uh, but you've got the audio book now as well, haven't you? I think it's about, you know, something I think that I'm, I'm trying to, I'm thinking while we're speaking, I think that underneath everything, no matter what one does, is that hopefully there's some kind of passion and enjoyment and, and that qualifies the work ethic that's needed for it. You know, it's an endeavor. It's to say, right, this is what I want to do. If you don't have that, it doesn't mean you're a criminal. But but that's how I've lived my life, you know? No regrets, right? Oh, and friendships. I should add that. I've I've been very, very keen on making sure that I'm available to my friends and I but there again I expect the same back. Mm-hmm. You know. And I would say that pretty much all my best friends are other roasting drivers, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Even though I was against them even though the bastards did go out and beat me and do better than me in Formula One. In fact, I'm thinking of junking them all as my friends. Yeah. You've made me think now. <laughs> <It's> exclusive. <laughs> so I'm
0: like it's phenomenal. I'm really, I know I'm very, very conscious of your time, but it's take my hat off. Yeah, I really do. I'm like, it's, you've lived a very, very interesting life with a load of experience and lessons. And
2: it, we haven't even touched on the, the stick. How many people no. don't ask you about that? So better be a one follow-up. or two, you know, when we first kicked it off, it was incredible
1: because the, the show immediately went into like 200 or ended up in 215 different territories. And because of the secrecy of the stick, it was amazing. The, people wanted to know where it was so badly. And the question of who is the stick became one of the top 10 questions asked on the internet. I, I was I was just behind is there a god and am I pregnant? <laughs> and were <are> you? <laughs> no, I'm God. I'm god okay. <laughs> <laughs> Without the money or gone. gold you must be itching to tell people though, right? Um it was fun to have as a secret, but um there was quite a lot of people in my race and guessed it was me pretty quickly, um, because I've got bandy legs. And I always used to stand with my arms folded. Anyway, you know, yeah. so and then also a bit of driving. So some people put it together. You know. Did you enjoy it? So, well, it was good fun working with Jeremy and James and 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 uh, Richard, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I've been, you know, and still see Richard every now and again. So it's great. And James, I'm to James occasionally. So it's good. It's, good. it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, like it's. So I can't thank you enough, Perry.
0: I really can't. It's thank you for coming on. Thank you for... Yeah, you're yep. Yeah, no, thank you for answering the email and coming on, taking the chance to come on and talk to us. Just appreciate it.
1: Well, I've not talked too much, so apologies to your listeners if I've rabbited on a bit. But
0: No, I could listen all night, to be perfectly honest, but uh, I'm conscious about your boiler. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well,
1: yeah, so just, to, just to explain to your viewers... Uh, had a major boiler issue at home and I've got uh, friends of mine who are far brighter than I am uh, looking after it right now making sure that the place can be heated so it all happened right now so anyway so yep it's, um, these are the problems but there's a way through it the coat and bubble hat exactly
0: <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed that talk with Perry it's full of life lessons to me and a lot of things resonated namely the power of watching and listening Give yourself a chance for the future. Work on weaknesses to excel at something. No one is to finish article, we're always learning. Work ethic underpins everything. And if you cut out too many things that make up your character, then you're putting out the fire within. Again, thank you very much for listening, I really hope you enjoyed it. And please do remember to like and review. Until next time, take care.